All right, so today we're going to do a little bit something a little bit different. I want to talk to you about Star Wars because I am a huge Star Wars fan. I love the prequels. I love the original trilogy. But watching the sequels made me really frustrated as a Star Wars fan for multiple reasons. First of all, it doesn't necessarily give you enough context about each character to explain what they're doing. It doesn't give you enough context about the events that are happening to explain what's, what are they doing. And it doesn't give you enough of that Star Wars feel in the movies where Star Wars has like those specific things that it does. It has music for each character. It has those transitions in between scenes. But it also is very political, which gives it context. It's also very fan, like fanboys get behind it. Um, what do you think the sequel, what did you think about the sequel trilogy? Overall, I enjoyed it because I, I am of the mindset all Star Wars is good Star Wars. I do, going into each movie, I always had to go see it more than once. Because the first time through, it was always kind of a, I don't know how I felt about it. And also, caveat, this is a little bit, it's not a diversion from Star Wars, but being from Nebraska, um, there are only two really big things for Nebraska. It's Nebraska football and Nebraska volleyball. Football's in the, been in the toilet forever, so our women's volleyball team, perennial national power, has been very good. What happened in sequence with the Star Wars trilogy release um, was that the final four of the NCAA tournament would always fall on the night of the midnight premiere. No way. And in 2015, when Force Awakens came out, we beat Kansas in the final four to advance to the championship, and then I got to go see Star Wars. So I entered Force Awakens on a high. In 2017, when The Last Jedi came out, we beat Penn State in like this crazy awesome match, saved a match point, made the championship, and then I got to go into The Last Jedi on a high. And so I can say that my viewpoint going in was probably always a little skewed because I, I probably should have been a little bit more critical going in each time than I was. But I, so I automatically was going into the first two in a good mood. But I, in terms of like things not being fleshed out, I had a ton of questions with The Force Awakens in terms of like, where did the First Order come from? How did we get here? You know, what's the backstory with some of these people? I didn't need all of it. But there was, I always had, I guess the biggest thing, I my takeaway from the sequel trilogy was that I was constantly, I needed more in terms of context. I wish there would have been a little bit more media before each movie to get us ready, I guess. Right, because I mean, at least for me, in episode one in The Phantom Menace, sure, it just jumps you in, but it does give you a lot of that political and like galactic context to what's happening and why like why does the trade for trade federation have a blockade on naboo well this this and this and then why are they going to have this battle why are they why are they in tatooine while they're doing this like but in this in force awakens specifically it's like it's just like click we're here and then it starts going and it's like well who are these guys how much of the control of the galaxy do they have like where are we because I didn't actually figure out that the, that the um, what are the bad guys called again in Star Wars? The First Order? The First Order, duh. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. It's, it's because I've almost blocked out the sequels out of my brain because I hated them so much at the time. Um, the First Order is actually more of like a, a side rebellion from the, new Emp from the New Republic. It's like its own thing in the Outer Rim. It's not like galactically controlling anything because in the movies it looks like they're controlling the galaxy but the truth is like 
well, how did they get that giant planet? Well, we still haven't figured that one out. But, like, Starkiller Base doesn't really make any sense. A lot of the stuff doesn't really make any sense without context, for me as a Star Wars fan. So what did you actually like about the movies? Because when I was watching those movies, I was nitpicking every little thing, and I couldn't really find much enjoyment out of most of it. I just liked the continuation of the story. Um, I did love. I loved that they brought back Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, and Harrison Ford, and that we got to see an older Luke, Leia, and Han. Um, a lot of people crapped on like you know Leia, you know, living in space and like using the Force, but it's like guys, like she is still Skywalker. She's still gonna have abnormal ability to use the Force, and so that for I was like, sit down, <laughs> like she is a Skywalker. Um, but in term, but just the continuation of the story in general, um, and, you know, getting to see what happens, what they created after the return of the Jedi. Um, yeah. And, and I, and the music, I mean, the music is always something that I've loved about Star Wars. And I, I still think John Williams did his part of the group project and then some, as much as he could do, you know, and he is the man. So, you know, and I still think he did... In terms of things that kept in Star Wars, I think the music was a huge part because there were still, he did create themes. There were themes for individual characters. Um, now, for some people that would argue musically that they weren't as memorable, it's like, well, this is John Williams, and he's done a lot of films. There are going to be things that sound familiar. Like, he can only do and create so much. And, and he's he, like 80 years old. And he already has created so much for this universe anyway. Yeah, I think we were lucky just to get him back. I'm surprised they didn't go with somebody else at that point. Yes, and so, you know, those are just some things that, you know, I love about the movies. Touching on the soundtrack real quick, I do know that Palpatine, like, even at the beginning in Episode 7, Palpatine's theme, or at least Ray's theme, was inspired heavily. Like, you can tell that there are notes that follow. You're smiling. Tell me about it. It's very purposeful, um, because... And sorry, but I want to like get control of my words because John Williams does everything on purpose with his themes. If you go all the way back, you have the throne room theme from the original trilogy. You go to the um, parade theme on Naboo at the end of episode one. Yeah. That is literally that throne, Emperor's throne room theme in major key. And if you slow it down and you take it down an octave, it sounds very close to, you know, the throne room theme. And so John Williams is very purposeful in that. And so then you go back to Ray's theme. And in The Force Awakens, when we had no direction, we didn't know where any of this was going. That did come up as a point of, guys, um, you know, we don't know who Ray is, but her theme sounds very close to Palpatine. It sounds a little bit like Palpatine. You know, like it just is just enough. It's close enough. But and you wouldn't have noticed it until, like, episode 9 when they actually revealed it. Once they revealed it, absolutely. But, like, for, well, and I have um, two siblings that, like, our music is their career. And so part of that is, like, really investigating the usage of themes and the way things are used. And so that was something, like, that they picked up on. And I was always had in the back of my mind as a possibility. And so the reveal wasn't as jarring, I so guess. So you were kind of expecting their relation to be there. Well, and I have my one brother who is like, he follows so many Star Wars podcasts and he had all of the books like Um, after Return of the Jedi growing up. And so he is like, so I always get like all of my information. He like knows everything in terms of like production projects that are coming up, you know. Because I think a lot of us Star Wars fans 
we're passionate yet casual about mm-hmm. Star Wars. Like we don't we don't necessarily seek out other Star Wars information other than the movies because ideally the movies are almost enough on their own, but the sequels have not been on their own enough. So it can make sense why going to these other podcasts will reveal or at least give fan theories to a lot of other stuff. Fan theories and information and just general, like finding other people to enjoy it with, you know, creating the community. I would agree that a lot of people, in terms of like if you had to number the fan base, I would say a large amount of them, like you said, are kind of casual in that they just go to the movies. We're not, you know, they're not people that watch Rebels, that watch The Clone Wars, that you know, are just sucked onto every single piece of Star Wars lore and creativity. And that's, but that's good because we need, we need casual fans. We need all fans. Like, I mean, if everyone was a neckbeard incel that just did nothing but love Star Wars, then the world would be an insanely chaotic place because those fanboys, the ones, because of course there, there are people who are passionate who liked the sequels. There are also a lot of passionate fans who loathe the sequels and they hate them. And those are the ones who could be very chaotic and do bad things. You know, that loathed it and hated it, but also those were some of the same people that, let me put it this way, it's, I feel like some of them are the generation, like myself, that our Star Wars was the prequels. Those were the movies that we got to go see in theaters. That was our Star Wars in the theater new movie experience. And the issue with that was, like, for me anyway, is that, like, I was loving it because I'm like, oh my gosh, we get Star Wars too. Like, we didn't just have to, like, you know, nostalgically look back and be like, oh, this is something my brothers had. It's like, I get to go to the theater as well. Well, then the experience got shat on by the older fans who were like, oh, the prequels are horrible. George Lucas should have never taken over. His writing's horrible. The script's horrible. Natalie Portman's horrible. She would have won an Oscar later. You know, Hayden, uh, Hayden Christensen's horrible. You know, there, there was no chemistry. Um, you know, Attack of Clones was so bad. Like, the prequel trilogy. But guess what? The prequel trilogy aged really well, in my opinion. But <laughs> That's then... That's a controversial take. It, I, believe, I truly believe the prequel trilogy aged really well. But the irony is, these people that were my age, who, you know, had our trilogy just shit upon and shit upon by other fans, turn around and do the, have done the exact same thing to the sequel trilogy. That's a really good point. And so I'm like, you, to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, you have become the very evil you promised to destroy. Mm-hmm. Like, 10 years from now, I'm not saying that this is a locker for sure thing. It's so uncivilized. It is very uncivilized. To quote Obi-Wan again. To quote Obi-Wan again. Um, I believe, I truly believe the sequel trilogy, years from now, people will look back on it and be like, it maybe shouldn't have gotten as much of a bad rap as it did at the time in terms of the hate and just like the polarizing reactions to the rise of Skywalker. I'm like, give it a rest. We get a bookended saga. Yeah. And the book, it goes into a lot more depth because some of the pages have already leaked Yes, and they will come out over time. But even just the pages that have leaked have basically explained away all the questions people have had in rise of Skywalker. Which is great, in my opinion. I think novelizations can do wonders for Star Wars movies. A lot of people don't realize this, but honestly, as a book on its own, just, you know, in terms of literal value, the Revenge of the Sith novelization is amazing. I would imagine. The movie's amazing. Yes, and I agree. I'm biased because I love Revenge of the Sith. But, like, honestly, if you haven't, go read it. 
I will buy you a copy. <laughs> like, that is how good it is. It's so good. I want to borrow it from you. It is so good. It is. And so the novelization, they are good things. And, can... well, and what that does is just give context to the rest of the movies and to give context to every detail that they do. Because, I don't know, when you go back and you watch the prequels, you even watch the original trilogy, as, like, if you were to look at them as objectively as a film critic would look at any other movie, like Moonlight or some, some Oscar-winning movie, Star Wars movies aren't very good in terms of film quality. Like, the way that they make the movies, they're not very artistic, they're not... But they're cool. And that's the the point of the movies isn't to be like objectively good movies because I think that's what these sequel haters really wanted is like but what we need to remember is that the overall story of Star Wars is a, is incredible there is so much fan fiction there's so much um, legends there's a lot of canon stuff that you've probably never read and it all ties together really really well even the legends that might count contradict other things can still have their own original ideas and be really cool. And we need to stop, like, Star Wars isn't necessarily just the movies anymore. And it never really was, except for when the original trilogy came out. The Star Wars is about the entire universe and the entire timeline together. And movies are just small little bits of it. But if you really care, you should be going into and learning about the context behind everything. Because, of course, well, Anakin turns evil from episode two to episode three like really quickly. But if you if you watch the Clone Wars and then you, I don't know, read the novelization like Michael was saying, it gives a lot more context and it's way better that way. No, more better. More better. Um, no, absolutely. I and it's almost a good I think for people who have now have a complicated relationship with Star Wars because of the sequel trilogy, it's kinda nice that the saga here is finished because you kind of have to step back and go well this is the skywalker saga this is about one family one very important family who was critical to you know the fortune and the you know political events of the galaxy through this you know through, through the these end decades. of the republic and yeah. the empire yeah end of the republic end of the empire like it is about politics a lot of it yes and how this family and this line plays into it but guess what now that the skywalker saga is done we can really start exploring the universe as a whole of the Star Wars universe of the different planets of other people's lives during the time or how they work into it, like what the Mandalorian has done. Yeah. And we have thousands of years of stuff to go over if we wanted to, which we can because it's there. And they just announced announced Project Luminous, mm-hmm. which High Republic, it's like, holy crap, what are we going to get? It's going to be so it's cool. It's going to be so amazing. Like, it's uh, every prequel fanboy's dream of like getting to go back just a little bit more you know yeah and we also we also can't forget how important lord sidious palpatine the emperor is in the skywalker story because i mean yes it is about the skywalker story but especially when you just think about the timeline of events that happened emperor palpatine does every like he basically guides everything that happens in all the movies his own way he's i mean he he controlled the entire galaxy at some point and then also almost regained it again Mm -hmm. within like 30 years he was so powerful and such a great villain and we just underestimate that yeah of course if you don't know why he came back that sounds really dumb and kind of weird but like if you know the context it makes a lot more sense 
Right, and you really get an appreciation for him as almost like this, as the supervillain of, it's almost like Shakespearean in terms of, yeah. he, you know, he's starting out as the senator and he's ambitious and then he weasels his way and uses the bureaucracy to his advantage and unseats the chancellor. He's the head of the government and then he's literally playing chess against himself during the Clone Wars as he's guiding both the separatist movement and the Republic forces and is trying to figure out you know, what the best way for him to retain power is, you know, but as long as there's conflict, it's good for him because, you know, um, the other thing that's so interesting with Palpatine, as you said, you know, he is throughout the entire thing. I, what I've always appreciated is that while Anakin was like, you know, he needed to get Anakin and use Anakin to help, you know, destroy the Republic. I always have this feeling that like Anakin and Lord Vader as, you know, it was kind of a wild card form where he could still couldn't actually truly ever predict Anakin Skywalker and therefore can never truly predict his lineage in terms of like his children, you know, in terms of like Luke Skywalker. And, you know, they talk about like, you know, the Emperor fears that, you know, Luke, that you will become powerful enough to overthrow him. And it's like, yeah, because he needed him on his side. He needed Anakin on his side because he can't, I don't know, I don't think he could ever truly predict. And that wasn't something he could, as you said, he guides everything, but with the level of power that someone like a Skywalker has, there was always some moment of doubt, I think, for him. For Palpatine? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole point with Anakin being the chosen one is to defeat Palpatine. He's not, because originally... The way that episode three ends, it almost seems like Vader is ending the Jedi Order to even out things. But the truth is that Palpatine was so powerful and so smart with the Force that he would have controlled the galaxy forever, basically. I mean, as far as we know, until he died naturally, which who knows how long that would have taken. Never. <laughs> yeah, so he needed... So he wasn't... A, so he, he basically had to control Anakin throughout the prequels and throughout even the original trilogy to do his bidding, but eventually he lost it because Anakin was always battling between the dark and the light side of the Force. And that's also like, as I think I mentioned this to you, this is, I mean, I feel like I was one of the few people that actually genuinely enjoyed the Rise of Skywalker because, I mean, because a lot of people are like, oh, there's so many parallels with Return of the Jedi. I was like, no, but it's so great for me as a Revenge of the Sith fan because I was always so heartbroken that we had to end on that bummer of a, you know, Anakin turning to the dark side and becoming Vader and the Jedi Order getting wiped out. It, like, I still love, like, Red of the Sith is still probably my favorite Star Wars movie, but with Rise of Skywalker, it was nice to see. It was like, it was honestly a reverse of Anakin Skywalker where throughout the movie, Ben Solo, slowly and slowly and slowly, you can see him doing the 180 back to the light. Yeah. And yes, he dies, and that is a whole different can of worms to go we don't into. even know if he's dead though sure. i mean there are fan theories that he's still alive yes but yeah he's but, dead on screen but he's dead on screen and so it was extremely gratifying for me um just it was like oh like uh, someone turns good you know someone who is dark and moody and complex and i know there's a range of you know opinions about what and how kylo ren is as a character but I truly gained more appreciation for him through his arc in The Rise of Skywalker where I can actually now go back and enjoy him throughout The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Because with Kylo Ren, in my experience with the sequel trilogy, I was always kind of, I could take him or leave him. I'm like, I'm not really sold on him. I don't hate him, but I'm also not like, oh, he's a badass villain. But then The Rise of Skywalker happens. I'm like, 
Okay. He's committing genocide at the beginning of the movie, <laughs> and then he, he progresses into a... So what did you think about Raylo? <laughs> um, like how it and like the actual culmination yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Offer? I'll just give my opinion. I thought that that kiss at the end was so stupid. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? All you're doing here is making Ray a weaker character by making her like in love with this guy who she's been trying to fix, and it just seemed weird. Do you know any more insight into that, or what did you think about it? Um, it felt right to me, especially the multiple times watching it in terms of, and considering their complex relationship through the arc of the trilogy. Um, wasn't necessary, not really, but I didn't, like, it didn't ruin anything for me. And it was, and considering that he dies, like, pretty much gives his life to save her afterwards, I'm like, yeah, yeah well, someone should get a kiss for that. I guess so it doesn't matter at that point. It, really, it, it doesn't matter at that yeah. point because he's dead, which pissed a lot of the Raylos off. Like, But for me personally, I was like, guys, be grateful. Like, I thought the odds of them, any, like, Raylo, any kind of Raylo happening were pretty slim, like, yeah. going into the movie. The fact that you guys had some manifestation... Like, be grateful. We had to sit there and watch freaking Poe Dameron flirt uh, with Carrie Russell, who we didn't even know who she came from. We're sitting there, we're like, um, excuse me, Finn's right there. Speaking of Poe and Finn, I thought that it was very clear the acting choices those two act, the actors themselves made while filming that movie were very clear that they wanted it to be a gay couple. Uh, everything about it was, like... In terms of, like, if you want a parallel of, like, with the original trilogy, they were very Han and Leia in terms of the banter and just the conflict. And they're both strong personalities, so they would conflict a lot and... Yeah, it's like, it was very, and it was believable Yeah, that's the thing, is, like, the way that the actors portrayed it, it was like, I wanted them to be together. It wasn't forced. It would have been easy to buy, and, oh, P.S., for all of the homophobes, bigots, and, or you know, national countries China. that don't want to, China, that don't want to screen that, guess what? We could have had that manifested and there didn't need to be a physical thing. All we needed was like some acknowledgement of, yeah, bros for life. Like we're together. Like we're never yeah. leaving each other. We didn't need some patronizing two second kiss of. <laughs> that could be easily edited off and was edited out for international showings where it's just like, oh yeah, we love the gay people, but only when it fits, like, this specific narrative of you don't really matter. Of you don't really matter, and it's like, oh, and we're going to use it as marketing fluff to say, to tease people and be like, oh, guys, there's an LGBT moment or a movie, come see it, and don't hate us on Twitter. And it's like, I wish you wouldn't have just done it. Well, and they picked women, like, two girls, too, because there's something be- behind America liking lesbians more than two guys kissing, because, like, I don't know. A lot of guys will see two girls making out and they're like, nice. But two guys making out, you have to be like truly progressed to a point where you're not homophobic to appreciate, hey, these guys are in love. This matters. And this is important. And I want to see it on my movie. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it says a lot in terms of like, and it's it speaks to like the homophobia, but also like the sexism that, oh, you know, that's, we can use women for entertainment like you know for like girl on girl action it's like oh that's hot um you know but we would never want men to do that because that's subverting them you know making Mm -hmm. them you know less than in terms of like just the overall gender discussion and so 
yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It just, it really pisses me off how much Chinese money influences movies in Hollywood these days. It's not just Disney. Disney is certainly a big part of it, but it's all Hollywood movies. There are Chinese executives in every single movie studio who are saying, we approve this, we don't approve this, we approve this. And it's only the it's only the big budget movies really that are impacted by this. We see lots of artistic great Oscar movies every year that do the exact opposite. But it shouldn't be these mainstream movies that are they should just say, No, we don't need your money. We have values and we believe that gay people have rights, that we can be artistic in our movies. Because it seems like for whatever the reason, the Chinese want like these very specifically written movies that fit like an authoritarian narrative. It's very complicated and I don't know all the details on it because I don't work in Hollywood, but you can see the effects. I would say ever since 2017, specifically big budget Hollywood movies all follow this weird same format that they used to never follow. Yep, and um, this is the case for the industry as a whole. Money speaks the loudest. And guess what? Because of China being what it is you know, financially, for Hollywood, the market of China and how the film does in China, it, it's to them, they're like, okay, this could be a sure big bang for our buck if we adhere to, you know, what they'll screen. And so because of the amount of money that they're going to get from the Chinese market in terms of their films, they are, you know, they do concede and give way to the very formulaic way of how big budget movies will be done in order to succeed in China. And, you know, people, they use the, um, you know, whatever the box office gross was for Rise of Skywalker being like, oh, this didn't rank super high. It's like, yeah, it didn't do great in China because guess what? It didn't follow. I mean, it did, but it didn't truly adhere to, you know, the big blockbuster format. And, you know... And Star Wars has has generally never done super well in China anyway. Well, Star Wars is a very American thing. There are a lot of specifically very... Like, the way that Anakin acts in the prequels is very anti-authority. And that's not what China likes. China likes somebody like Obi-Wan, who's like, I gotta follow all the rules. Mace Windu, the Jedi Order is very, like, Chinese in that way. But Anakin's not. And Anakin's the character that I think a lot of us feel like we are like Anakin was always the person who I looked up to while watching the movies at least up until the end of it but the fact that he always he struggled with both the light and the dark and the fact that he had so much on his plate in terms of like people were telling him well we have this prophecy that you're the chosen one how are you supposed to live up to that no kidding I mean and I remember um one of the things we Briefly at Star Wars Celebration Chicago before we were, you could go watch live podcasts. They had different rooms set up at the convention center and we were waiting for ours and there was a um, podcast going on in the room and they were talking about like, oh, how toxic the relationship of like, oh, why didn't Padme run? Like, couldn't she see this toxic male? And one of the other podcast hosts was like, um, you don't understand though. Like, this is a guy, he's in a war. He's having to be a general in a war He's been told all his life that he's the chosen one. Um, P.S. They can't tell anyone they're married for both of their careers. Because guess what? She's still a senator, by the way. And a good one, too. And a really good one. If you watch The Clone Wars, which you need to if you haven't Star Wars fans, it's so good. It's so good. And 
So they're both really good at their jobs, and they're also both under the spotlight a lot. And so it's like, you want to sit here and talk about how, oh, she should run, he was a toxic male. I was like, they're both dealing with a lot of heavy stuff on a galactic level, by the way. As Americans and as, like, our humans, you know, all we can do is think globally. I was like, take that and just blow that up. Galactically. Blow that up times a million. Well, and especially when you consider... The prequels aren't necessarily written very well. The dialogue isn't always there. And they didn't spend that much time working on Anakin and Padme together. They do in the Clone Wars a bit more, but not not even as much as... But when they are in the Clone Wars, you can see how much stress and pressure that puts on the relationship. But when they actually are able to spend time together, even just on missions or whatever, they get along really, really well. And Anakin is not toxic at all. The toxicity stems more from stress and Palpatine. Right. Clearly. And- yeah, and just the conflict of, you know, having to deal with both, like, you know, the light side and the dark side of the Force. Yeah, so one of the things, I'm, the, in terms of, like, why people, the, with the prequels, like, a lot of problems that were had were the fact how rough the dialogue was and your scenes with Anakin Padme. There wasn't a lot. They weren't given the opportunity, though. I mean, part of it was the script. Part of it, I feel like they just didn't have the time to really go into any specifics of their relationship at all. Right, because George probably wrote this idea of, okay, XX and X is going to happen. We need to make all this fit into this movie. And it's like, well, we can only make a two-hour movie, and the dialogue wasn't great, so you can't, like... And the editing wasn't great either, so it's, it's a lot. It's a lot on George's plate. It was a lot on George's plate, and in terms of the dialogue, it's like, okay, so we need to establish that they're in love, which is why you get some of these, like, really clunky lines of, like, things that... It's like, in no real relationship would that have ever been said or put that way. You yeah. know what I mean? But, and relationships are so nuanced, you didn't, they didn't have the time, and they had to advance the story. So it's like, we need to establish this emotion, this emotion, and this source of conflict in, like, under 30 seconds. So you have to use really strong, really forward, really clunky language. Well, and part of it, too, is when they actually do devote time to the relationship, it's done horribly. Specifically, episode two, the sand scene. Like, when they... (laughs) I, I don't mind... I, I love their relationship, and I even love the way that, even though it's a little creepy, how Padme was a lot older than him, and but, like, he's like, you're are you an angel? I don't know. I thought that was cute. But then it progresses to, like, this weird, like, moody teenager relationship, and they still don't give enough screen time, and then, boom, all of a sudden, they're, like, married with kids. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of gap between two and three as well. There's so much gap between two and three, which... There's even a lot of gap between one and two. There's a lot. There's a lot. They are the most spaced out of the movies, like, hands down. How many years is it? So, you got, between episode one and two, I think it's something like eight years. Wow. Between one and two. I could use a TV show in between there. That'd be awesome. For sure, you could use a TV show in between there. Like, Anakin training. Anakin is like a young Padawan. As a knight, and then... How the hell does Padme become a sen- go from queen to senator? Plus, there I is, want General Grievous stuff. There is a book called With the Queen's Shadow of how Ooh. she's stepping down as queen and Palpatine comes back and asks her to come on as senator. All part of his plan. All part of his plan. And then it's her, and it's great because if you love like the politics of the galaxy, it really goes into that of her being a new senator and trying to get like legislation done. And it really kind of supports in terms of like how 
just slow the bureaucracy is and how hard it is to get anything meaningful done. And you also get these moments of how she really wants to explore outline slavery in the galaxy as like, and the reason for that obviously is because Anakin and his mother is a slave and she oh. wants to take on this personal mission of going to Tatooine to free his mother. Wow. Which I almost get That'd chills. That'd be a cool story. I almost get like chills thinking, like that's what she wanted to accomplish, mm-hmm. right? But she couldn't because of the bureaucracy of the galaxy. But it almost like, gives me chills thinking that like, even though they were apart and even this time period where technically they don't see each other, he was very much on her mind in terms of something. They cared about each other so much. They cared about each other so much. And I'm like, what a thing to do of like, what a great romantic gesture of like, I want to outlaw this thing that oppressed you in terms of like your childhood. And also I want to free your mother. Especially the impact that that would have had on the future of the galaxy had she been able to save his mom. But of course, we all know who was behind the bureaucracy that prevented that from happening. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. Sheev Palpatine. (laughs) Sheev. Sheev babes.
boy, let him know.